Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Today, my guest is Chris Risotto. Chris received her doctorate in music from the University of Oklahoma, a master's in music from Eastern Carolina University, and a bachelor's degree from the University of Federal, Dorigio de Janeiro. Chris is currently the director of music at the Lake of Isles Lutheran Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a part-time composer and a full-time mother. Chris is married to Dr. Clara Risotto, and they have two children, a five-year-old daughter and 10-month-old little boy. Chris is a trans woman who was introduced to me by a mutual friend and wanted to join me on the podcast after listening to some of my previous interviews. She shared with me over email that she wanted to share her experiences and clarify some of the misinformation of the trans community. So I, of course, welcomed her on the show. I hope you learn as much from her as I did. She's a wonderful person, and I'm glad I was able to spend some time with her. Well, hello, Dr. Chris Risotto. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Pleasure to be here. So I, I want to introduce the listeners, kind of how we met. Uh, I have a real good buddy from high school named Brett McIntyre, and he is a uh, subscriber to True 30, and he witnessed one of my interviews with a former colleague of mine uh, named B. Davis, who transitioned last June of 2021. And I know that you actually watched that interview as well. And so I reached out to Brett and I said, hey, can you put me in touch with Chris Rizzotto? Uh, I understand you're friends with her. She's a trans woman. I would love to talk with her about all of this because I've had five, six conversations with trans women off camera, uh, but they didn't want to be on camera. And I was like, oh, do you think she'll come on? He said, well, send her an email. <laughs> so I sent you an email inviting you on the show. And your response was wonderful. It said, I found the described mission of True 30 interesting and listened to the exact interview with B. Davis. And there are indeed several aspects of trans-related topics. We have unfortunately become controversial and divisive among the general population. Instances in our community that seems to be shooting ourselves in the foot, not realizing that we may be adding fuel to the fire, specific to children transitioning, sports, religion, et cetera. And so I thought it would be great because later on in your note, you said, I would hope to be able to bring some value to this conversation and understanding of all things trans, at least from the perspective of my own lived experience as a trans woman with a lifelong struggle with gender dysphoria as a parent, member of a church, and a concert musician. And to be clear, my listeners, you have a PhD from Oklahoma in music, uh, a master's degree, and you are a very decorated pianist and organist. So I just want to make sure that my listeners understand you're a gifted musician. So thank you again for coming on the show. And I think that why don't we start a little bit with B, not that everyone watched the B Davis interview, but my friend B transitioned 
biological male transition to a trans woman goes by non-binary, she, her, uh, trans woman. And is there anything in that interview that you remember that you thought stood out that I was, that we missed the mark on or that came across offensive? Because I've been called out on a couple different interviews lately specific to language. And I want to make sure uh, I don't continue to offend people because that's not my goal with these interviews. Nothing stood out to me. Okay, Hmm. great. So a lot of things that we discussed, and I think maybe we can dive into one of the most controversial ones because you put it in your email, specific to transition, how do you feel as a trans woman about our approach specific to children identifying as other? So if it's a little biological boy who wants to you know, transition to uh, a little girl or vice versa, what are your thoughts on that specific to the mental strife of the child and the relationship with their parents? And how do you see, what's the best approach do you think we need to at least consider as a culture? All right. So when I was a child, speaking from my experience, mm-hmm. I already experienced gender dysphoria from very early age. I didn't know the name for it. Um, and this was early 90s. So this was not a thing that you saw in places. So um, I didn't have the courage to tell anyone about it except one of my sisters when I was really young. But um, how old were you when you understood that you that you felt disconnected from your biology and that you that you felt that you, you were trans? You didn't know that you didn't have the actual vernacular. But when did you know? Was it? Four, five, seven? Yeah, around that time. Really Four, early. Five. Okay. Yes, one of my earliest memories. Thank you. So um, there are various aspects about when we we talk about children transitioning. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, I think there's a lot of controversy, particularly on the medicalization of children. Yeah. Uh, which is, so um, once again, going back to, to my experience, just to illustrate when I was around 13 years old, I discovered the endocrine system because I had friends who studied medicine. They were much older and they had these anatomy books. So I found out about hormones and all that stuff. And I, uh, in, in, in my hometown, um, close to the school where I attended, there were, uh, how do you say, sex workers that worked outside at night. And one of my school friend said oh look at that those are not really girls and she was laughing about it but I went after that and I asked them how they did it I was 13 okay so I said well how did you become a woman okay can I do that and they they helped me so I started some medicalization when I was around 13 but I interrupted many times um, throughout the next 10 years I stopped and started because I was afraid of my family so I ended up going through normal male puberty and I find that it it has its setbacks. But one thing that I thought makes all the difference and children are are not thinking about it is do they want to have their own children one day? Yeah. So, and that's, that's the key point to why I disagree with medicalizing very young people or or stopping Puberty with puberty, um, puberty blockers, the, the yeah. Lupron, because that also is the brain needs to develop and, and connect in certain ways that cannot happen if you stop that. So 
mm-hmm. when I was um, later married and I was already on hormones, but I was as an adult, I discovered or really thought about it like maybe I am sterile forever because I didn't plan for this and it could have been worse if I was much younger, but I was able to have my own children because I interrupted hormones for a bit and did what it took. But as that is the main concern that I have about very young children, um, teenagers taking these major life decisions Mm -hmm. because they don't know what, what they're going to feel about when they grow up. Because obviously when I started hormones, I was 23. I didn't think about having kids even at that age. Imagine when I was 13, it was not even a, a thought crossing my mind. I was, so that's one aspect, which is the, the medical aspect of it. The other part is what's called the social side of it. Mm-hmm. And on that, I am much more lenient uh, as a former child with gender dysphoria. I would say it would have been nice to be allowed to self-express, to, to have some of that freedom. Child play, right? Uh, I, it's it's hard to, to, to put in words, but it, it's to not make a big deal out of it. The social part can go away. Wasn't that what happened to um, Angelina Jolie's child that used to mm-hmm. go by John and use a, a suit and short hair? And then one day when she was a teenager, she decided, okay, I'm past that. And no problem. No hormones. No, right. no big deal. So I think that's a healthy approach. So on that social side, I don't mind if the child wants to change name, go by different pronoun for a little bit. That's okay. I think it's just the medical side that is because it has potential permanent consequences. Of course, the good part of going through the puberty you would like to go instead of the one your body will make you go through, it would have been a, a better adaptability on the secondary sex characteristics. So, yes, that is the big argument, right? In the sense that, have you seen the show Euphoria? No. Okay, so in the United States, I don't. Where do you 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 still live here? Uh, you live in the somewhere in the South, no? I live in Minnesota. You live in Minnesota. Time. That's right. I remember. I grew yeah. up in Minnesota, by the way. In Twin Cities. I live in Twin yeah. Cities. But I am native of Brazilian. That's right. From Rio from de Janeiro Brazil. was your one of your your undergrad, right? Um, mm-hmm. Beautiful place, by the way. I was in Rio in 2010. It's absolutely gorgeous. And so to get back to the socialization side of things, because I agree with you 100% on both counts. And as I've said, shared with my audience, you know, they know that I'm a media executive and I haven't, <laughs> I have no background in endocrinology, medicine, psychiatry, any of that. But in the homework I've done over the last six months, I've interviewed clinicians um, and therapists and endocrinologists in Australia, Britain, and Scandinavia. And there is a divide among the subject matter experts about this type of medication, specifically the Luprin, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm which is a puberty blocker most commonly used here in the United States. And one of the big discussions is that puberty blockers have no long-term um, irreversible issues. So if you want to actually, as a, let's just say that you have a nine-year-old little girl who wants to transition and they start measuring to see when she's going to go through female puberty. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they prescribe these puberty blockers. And from my understanding, 
is one of the original indications approved by the FDA is that Luprin was something for precocious puberty, which is for a six-year-old little girl who unfortunately is going through puberty too early and it will cause her to be short and it will cause her to be sexual. And so these puberty blockers were given to these children in these exigent circumstances to block them for another two or three years. And then they let them off and there's, that's, that was what it was for. And so the idea now is that if your children have socially transitioned, right, to your point, where they, they use a different pronoun, they change their name, they change their expression as far as their dress, whether they grow their hair out or whether they become more feminine or whether they stay a tomboy, it doesn't really matter. It's just however they want to express themselves. Um, the, at that point, the argument from some of the medical community that I've talked to is that if you get on that path socially with puberty blockers, there's a 92 to 98% chance, depending on the clinical study, that you will graduate to cross-sex hormones. If and you once, are on the puberty blockers. If you're on the puberty blockers. Mm -hmm. and, from, and that's diametrically opposed to historical longitudinal studies in the 80s and 90s, where... 80%-ish, 70 to 80% of the kids that were confused found resolution during puberty because mm -hmm. once the hormones rush through your body and your brain, a lot of times these young men, these young boys and girls actually find out that they're homosexual, yeah. right? Versus trans. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where a lot of the narrative gets lost in that sense. And so for me, I agree with you. And I've taken some flack for this <laughs> online specifically. I, I don't know enough to be adamant, but I think from the data that I've reviewed specific to puberty blockers, um, there's something also called a cascade of intervention. It's a medical term that means once you start on something like puberty blockers, you tend to graduate to the next pieces. And if you're blissfully happy as a child in your new gender, it's going to be very difficult to actually interrupt that, right? Because yeah. if you're, if you now, if you were, you know, Stevie, and then you, you changed to Susie, and now you're, you have all your new friends in fourth and fifth grade that know you as Susie and accept you as Susie, it's very difficult for children anyway to make friends, much less like, oh, by the way, <laughs> I'm going to switch back now. And, and I don't want to do that. So they just say, I'm going to, I'm going to remain in this this iteration, if you will. And then from that, they graduate to cross-sex hormones. So that's really the big piece. Do you think that puberty blockers themselves, does that qualify as what you mean by medicization or medicalization? Do you think that that's yeah. also fraught or do you think that puberty blockers have a valid uh, purpose? I mean, the purpose would be to delay yeah. puberty so you can make your mind about it. And obviously, as you said, most people that go on puberty blockers will decide to yeah. continue to cross-sex hormones. The risk I've, that I've read about uh, with these blockers is the body has its biological clock of when things should be happening in terms of growth, in terms of brain development and, and yeah. connections. And some of those aspects of growing up, they, they are triggered by the, the, the hormones. That yes. sexual hormones that you have yep. and if they cannot come in your body is 
going through this uh, timeline that it has and so that these connections may not happen. So things about uh, decision-making uh, areas of the brain may be affected. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, because that's where the complication is. And then on the, on the converse argument is that there's, and the reason I asked you about euphoria, there's a young lady named Hunter Schaefer. And I reference her often in these interviews because I'm fascinated by her. The show Euphoria taught me as a 55-year-old male really what non-binary or pansexual or you know just fluidity in general with being in love. And the show itself has a very popular former Disney star named Zendeha. And she is a high school student in the show. And she befriends a young lady named Jewel who in the show is a trans woman and in real life, she's a trans woman. And she started on cross sex hormones at 14 Mm -hmm. and she, and I don't know how important this is for a lot of trans people, but she passes as a female. She, because she started on this, she did not go through male puberty Mm -hmm. at the same level. So she remained smaller in every aspect. Uh, And because she's now on estrogen, she's, become more female and buxom and and she she has female breasts and in the show she falls in love well they have a friendship first these two these two young ladies and they have a friendship first and then they fall in love and they become romantically in, in involved and as they start to kiss and fondle each other i looked over at my wife and i was like oh i get it i get it <laughs> i understand non-binary pansexual relationships because I didn't understand what that meant before. I always thought bisexual means you can, you know, I, you can have sex or you're attracted to both sexes. In this case, these young ladies weren't in love with the actual biology. So they didn't care if you had a penis or a vagina, they just loved each other. And that's where the relationship came from. And so that was like a breakthrough for me. And I was like, Oh, okay. And she, again, being Hunter Schaefer, identifies as a trans woman mm-hmm. not only in the show but in real life and she's everywhere so i don't know how much you've watched this but she has you know she's on the cover of esquire and vanity fair and and she's this breakthrough star and she's adorable and funny and i think she seems to be very uh full of introspection and kindness and compassion she seems like a very um, amazing young young woman a young trans mm-hmm. woman and so I asked about that because she identifies as a trans woman and says, I do not want people to be confused that I am a cis woman. And so a lot of the narrative in our culture today, uh, specifically on the activist side of trans, is that if you do not believe that a trans woman is a woman, then you are a transphobe or a bigot. And I get this from, I've interviewed six very storied feminists over the last four or five months. Mm -hmm. And all of them believe that trans women need to be protected and legislated specific to harm and discrimination. 100%, all of them. What they don't believe, and neither do I at this point, is that trans women are women in the sense that because they've been lobbying as suffragists for feminists, women's liberation for 40 years, 
there has to be a demarcation between trans women and natal females. And so that's the big argument. So I'm asking you this long-winded, but do you think that the term trans woman is a pejorative statement or a, a, a not nice statement? Or do you accept trans woman as a proper chronicled example of who you are? I accept it. I don't, I never thought of it as pejorative. In fact, yeah. I'm quite fond of it. Um, I do obviously can't tell that I'm a biological male. There's no way around it for me. So there are differences, I feel, obviously. Yeah. The fact, well, I, the fact that I that I could father my children, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that that to me is where I think you mentioned that our culture is doing and saying things, shooting ourselves in the foot, to use your vernacular, right? That's where I think we are not connecting because I've been called a transphobe a lot recently online after interviews with Dr. Helen Joyce, who wrote a book called Trans. When ideology meets reality, and that show went. I think public. I heard that one too. Yeah, so that mm -hmm. th that we had, you know, tens of ten thousand views so far on that one, and lots of comments, <laughs> and the comments were mostly uh, polite. But then I got DM'd, public, you know, privately from other people saying that um, I was peddling misinformation and transphobic dialogue. I even had one friend of mine who is a CMO of a very large tech company here in San Francisco, share my interview with B. Davis. Mm -hmm. They watched that. And then they went to the next interview and they watched the Helen Joyce interview. And that was a big rigmarole at the company. The HR got involved and they said that Helen Joyce was a transphobe and that she was telling lies about trans people. And I was like, wow, okay. So this is where our culture again is... And this is why I'm just so happy to have you on the show because Helen and the numerous other women that I've interviewed thus far as feminists mm -hmm. have all said the same thing. We want to help trans women. Yes. We want to legislate and we will even share with trans women the template for women's liberation. Like how did we rise up to protect ourselves from the patriarchy, right? That was, that was their whole mission. And they've done a very good job specific to, you know, equal pay. Well, not quite there, but equal pay, um, you know, birth control. And then sadly, like Roe v. Wade, obviously being overturned today was, you know, a, a big blow to feminism in general. But they have done a very good job as a group and they are willing as a group to share their knowledge and their uh, network to lobby on behalf of trans women. What they will not do, and this is where the transphobic uh, uh, claims come is they will not say trans women are women because that tramples on feminist ideology specific to, oh, and this will be a good one. I didn't think of this. So single female spaces, that's mm -hmm. one of their big things. So female prisons, rape centers, domestic violence centers, female only spaces, if you will. What are your thoughts on a biological male sharing those female spaces because that is a full stop for feminists. They just, they do not want to share 
the space with biological males, specifically rape centers and female prisons. How do you feel on that as a trans woman? Is, do you have a take on that? I understand why they wouldn't want someone with a penis in a rape yeah. center or yeah. a, a male. Um, the the prison is is more complicated because I imagine if I were to ever be in a situation where I would end up in prison, I would be terrified to end yeah. up in a male men's prison. But I, I can see also because you you do you do have situations um, where undesirable things happen when trans women are put in, into female prisons. Um, if if I could decide over this, I would probably put um, the tr trans women in some kind of a separate yes. area. I, I don't know, yeah. not segregation, because that's inhumane. Well, no, that but, would be, um, yeah, that is inhumane, you're right. Yeah, but, but um, some different pod, not, uh, you know, I don't know, just to be protected, because we, when we're with with if in a um a place with men, there's definitely risk too for us. But with the women, yes. uh, biological women, cis women, they can feel threatened too. And I, I don't want to feel like I'm a threat to anybody. So as right. you mentioned, the the single sex spaces, I don't go into female locker room. You do not say, and I've okay, and I've been on hormones for almost ten years. But I won't. I respect that. Um, there's people changing and um, undressed. I will not walk in. I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. I will. I do use restrooms, but that's right. Much less. Just on the go. It's not the, nearly the same level of exposure as a, right. a locker room in a gym. So yeah, right. I do respect female only spaces and. Yeah. Well, no, that's fantastic. I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a problem. That, that also is a delineation when we talk about changing rooms versus bathrooms. For me, as an example, if I saw you walking into a woman's bathroom, I wouldn't think twice about it, you know, because as you just, you said you don't pass, but I mean, you're a very attractive woman. And so I, I wouldn't think for a second, I wouldn't, oh, oh wow. <laughs> you know, I've never if, had any issues. I wouldn't imagine. I've had in the men's bathroom because sometimes if i think oh, oh yeah. i look like a mask today then i walk <laughs> in the men's bathroom i have men jumping out when they walk yeah. in the door and they I ask bet. me is this the right place am i in the wrong bathroom yeah <laughs> they ask you so i have less problems actually i just you know we just want to pee yes well and see and you, as you witnessed with my interview with b davis she's six three mm -hmm. and she's smaller now because she started on hormones but i'm not sure how if she stayed on them and she wears a lot of makeup but she also likes to wear her beard and if you saw in the i don't know if you watched or listened but during the interview i started listening but then i wanted to see her face right i couldn't picture right and she's a beautiful she's she i mean she looks great and i told her that but she ha she likes to wear her beard sometimes and so she said because she's on the other side of this. She thinks that all bathrooms should be neutral, which I don't have a problem with historically either, but to be discriminated against. If she actually walks in, can you hear me? Yes, the sound okay, good. For a second, Something just back. happened with my microphone, but she said that she gets harassed if she walks into a either a female bathroom 
or a male bathroom. And that is because mm -hmm. of her appearance, right? When you're 6'3 in heels, as she said, she's sometimes she's 6'6, six, 6'7, six, 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 yeah, that's tall. That's you're a very tall, tall person, no matter if it's female or male. And then if you walk in in a mini skirt, which she likes to wear, and high heels and leggings and all of that, into the mail room, then everyone's like, oh my, what are you doing here? So I understand that there's a problem with that mix. And I think the bigger piece, obviously, is I think there's more those are easier problems to solve than the female prison thing as an example. And I actually yes. think to your point there, um, mm -hmm. I agree. And I don't know if the numbers are big enough. That's the question, right? The, yes. The, there's, it's still trans people as a demographic, the numbers are growing indeed. So we do not have, you know, 2022 numbers. Two-year-old statistics are saying there's 1.4 million people who identify as trans in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that's a you know a very small percent, 0.01% of what's going on. And so you're looking at that and saying, okay, how then do we legislate to protect that small of a population in the instance of prison, right? Because maybe there's only 10 or five, you know, in a whole prison. So I don't even know how that looks, but I agree with you on that front. Which then obviously leads me to the next question, which I think trans as a group makes sense to me, specifically how fast it's growing, is in mm -hmm. sports. So you mentioned that in your email as well. How do you feel about biological men, trans women, competing against natal females in competitive sports? Do you have a, do you have a purview on that? I do have some... And this, that book you recommended, uh, T, is, yes. is um, very interesting on that. I didn't know that humans had, or males had four stages of four stages. more increased testosterone than females. And ever since uh, before birth and at right after birth. So that part I, I had never heard before. I, well, obviously, I, we cannot deny that going through male puberty, if anyone has, will give the advantages right over a female regardless the mm -hmm. the the best and the fastest and the most fit female will always unfortunately be behind um many many more males even some almost average yeah um, it's just a matter of because uh, males develop more muscle and those are things that cannot be undone even with when you take out testosterone and replace right. it with estrogen, it still will not do it because we're built. Um, puberty, male puberty is a very strong thing that is basically impossible to undo in a lot of ways. So I, unless a person has really been transitioning ever since they were medically, yes, uh, like the age of this uh, hunter that you mentioned, yes. like 13 years old, like, I, I guess if you keep it up like that, it, it could be. But for the most part, I, I think that that's, in my opinion, that's one sacrifice that uh, trans women would have to do most likely is <laughs> to respect biological women in that aspect. Otherwise, it would take the fun out of it for them. It's a great word, sacrifice, because I do think it does involve a sacrifice. If you are a trans woman, and have transitioned, 
like Leah Thomas did at the University of Pennsylvania. I do think it's unfortunate that she can't compete with females. I do. I mean, I feel for her on that front. But I also don't think it's fair to compete against natal females. And to your point around Carol Hooven, she's the uh, PhD, and she's a biological, evolutionary biologist at Harvard who wrote a book called Mm -hmm. T, The Hormone That Dominates and Divides Us. And so for my listeners who don't know what we're referencing, that is the book I recommended to you. And I recommend to anyone, because to your point, it was news for me too, that we actually have in natal a rush of testosterone based on being a small gamete, being a mm-hmm. biological male. And then two months after birth, you get another rush of up to 20 times the testosterone as a biological boy versus a biological girl. And then during puberty, after tan or two, which is the stage where you just mentioned, if you can get, if you can stop puberty before that, There's a chance that you can compete in female sports. And that's actually the new FINA regulations around that. Um, They have done exactly that. They've they've legislated based on 10 or two below. And so what Carol Carol Hooven was talking about is once that happens, once that level of, it's 30 times, up to 30 times the testosterone. Mm -hmm. Let's say for me, it was, I was 15 and I grew five inches in one summer. My basketball coach was very happy and I changed. Everything changed. You know, my voice cracked, my hands got bigger, my shoulders, my penis, all that stuff. I was like, thank God, finally. But it was one of those things where it was a massive amount of change. And so I said in my interview with B Davis, I have absolutely no problem with a trans man, a biological woman who is now transitioning to male, competing against males in competitive mm-hmm. sports. Because if they can do that, more power to them. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Good for you. And that means you're a considered, you're just a wonderful athlete to begin with. And so great. Well, certainly. Converse of that, obviously, if you're a male competing against natal females after puberty, it's just categorically unfair. And as a liberal, uh, politically, we look through most things through two lenses, harm and fairness. And so I fought in competitive martial arts for years and we didn't have men fight against women for the exact same reason. Men have a 162% increase in punching power to Mm -hmm. natal females. We have anywhere from 30 to 50% lower body strength, anywhere from 70 to 95% more upper body strength, fast twitch muscle, bigger hearts, bigger lungs, bigger hands, bigger feet, everything is to your advantage as a biological male in competitive sports. Everything, even your gait, the way that female hips are constructed biologically, they're wider to give birth. So the efficiency on the physiology is not the same, specific to running, right? If you look at statistics that way. So all of that is lost in the vitriol in our culture going back and forth. It's not a matter of trying to be exclusive to trans athletes. It's, in my opinion, and this is based on quite a bit of homework now, there's 166 natal females in the United States of America. And obviously there's, I don't know the numbers globally, but if you look at that and understand, let's just say if there's 1.4 million trans folks, there's 700,000 females males, whatever, just mm-hmm. divide that. And then how many of those are athletes? And then how many of those are competing at the division one level? It's a very small group, but I would agree with you in the same sense is that 
as the trans population continues to grow, we need to give them a venue. And that venue would be very similar. We need to have trans compete with trans or they have to compete in their biological categories. I don't, I don't really think it's fair. And I think that with the FINA recommendation that just was handed down this week, uh, they're now in agreement on that front as well. Mm-hmm. I can't believe this is controversial. I actually it's can't obvious. either. But I, again, it's obvious to me. <laughs> I think so too, but I've been called a lot of names specific yeah. to defending this. And, and so that's why I want to talk. And I invite people on the show, specifically the young feminists who they've done two things that were surprising to me. They said that the feminists that I interviewed are not feminists, that they're turfs, they're bad people, mm-hmm. they don't deserve a platform. And they were mad at me for giving them a platform to talk, which again is a whole, it's a whole nother topic, which I think is part of our problem today is that if you don't like someone's opinion, challenge that opinion, <laughs> you know, do some homework on their opinion, try to understand where they're coming from and then engage in dialogue. Because I, mm-hmm. if I, someone can convince me that natal females should compete against biological males. I'm listening. I just haven't heard a, a, a rational constructed argument based on that yet. And it's again, coming from a trans woman, it means more to me that you, you know, you're saying to yourself, yeah, I don't understand why this is even a debate because <laughs> I don't Well, even- of course the thing is, right. Um, we're very small in number. So if, if anything, we're the ones who should be trying better to fit in society we, should, we cannot ask 99 percent of people to fit in with us uh, i don't think that's fair to the majority of people who are just living and yeah for women in sports if if you have just a few trans women mixed with the biological men women is it will very likely be that we'll be winning all of the everything right and qualifying for all the things very most likely so I, I don't see sportsmanship in that. And I'm, I'm not a sports person or anything, but it's just, that's just what I see from the outside. Right. Do you think you're in the, do you think you're uh, in the minority with this opinion as a trans woman? Probably. It sounds like it. <laughs> it sounds so, like it. Yeah. So I, 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 I am a big proponent of thinking your own thoughts. Yeah. Right. And I've had, I've been everywhere. I started life as a very strong, uh, conservative, very traditional Christian, and I've evolved to other areas. And I've learned to listen to both sides because when when you walk into, you know, the LGBT community, you will not find many conservatives. So there's a yeah. lot of listening that happens, and then there's a lot of changing in yeah. in my mentality that has happened throughout the years. Ever since I was, you know, a teenager, when I was very strongly as as right wing as you can get almost so it things have changed but i've thought of things in both in both ways in a lot of um i just take each each matter mm-hmm. by its own merits and i look at, at it and i think i've retained some opinions and some i have changed and i will not just abide by everything because i don't think that's right uh, right just because you're I don't know, a skin color or a gender or anything. Right. You have to follow all of these uh, expected opinions. I don't agree with that. And are you still an active member of a church? I am a music director at a church. Yeah. So most definitely I'm involved in, in religion. <laughs> okay. So is it the same, are you, is it the same Christian upbringing that you had or did you no. switch denominations? 
I had to switch. So I was raised Roman Catholic. My family is very strongly Roman Catholic as well. And I've worked for the Roman Catholic Church for 14 years. I love it. Ever since I was in high school, basically, until 2020. And in 2020 is when we went separate ways because they couldn't, they weren't okay with my transition. Okay. Because I grew up Catholic as well. And so Mm -hmm. I I can, I understand where you're coming from there because I've had these conversations with my mother and, you know, again, she's 82, so it's not like she's going (laughs) to be real malleable on this front, but she just, just doesn't understand it. I think if she met you, she'd be like, oh, she's really sweet. That's all. (laughs) And that'd be it. There'd be no more, but it's, yeah. So the church that you now are a member of is accepting and welcoming to trans people. Yeah, I'm, I had to go find another yeah. employment in a denomination that would not have a problem with this. And that yeah. for me, in, in my area, in this case, it was the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Okay. The LCA. So th- that would not be an issue. And once again, I don't know why it should be an issue because I've, you know, my whole family is Catholic and we all have, I have to have these conversations with them because there's no other way around it. And what they say is, yeah, indeed, the church doesn't have any teaching about this specifically. There's no, no. document. The Pope never said anything. No. But we're sure it's wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because I don't even, and how, you don't, you don't have to answer this, but how does your family feel about your transition? Uh, they're divided. They're divided. I would, okay. I would say mostly terrible. About oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. That makes things tough. Yeah. You mentioned you have siblings. Are the siblings on your side? They're divided. I they're divided as well. I would say it's a gradient. <laughs> okay. It's a gradient. So I think that that actually this lends into the next discussion for me. I was on a wonderful call with a woman named Lucy Massoud uh, this week, who is a feminist in Britain and a barrister and a big LGBT advocate. And so as a member of the fire brigade in London, she lobbied on behalf of trans people specifically to have more time for transition surgery. So people that are actually going through not only uh, cross hormone, cross hormone therapy, but surgeries. And so she helped the fire brigade give these people extra time for healing, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, all of that. And she's a wonderful woman. And for me, that's part of, I think, what bothers me. She's called a turf and she's told that she should be fired and that she shouldn't have a job. And and this, you know, this activism uh, that comes after her calling her a transphobe is very confusing to me because this is someone who's actually been lobbying on behalf of LGBT for decades now. And I share that with you because that's exactly where she sits on the LGBT side is that what we should focus on as opposed to all these vitriolic conversations is Mm -hmm. how do we best protect our trans people specific to legislating harm and discrimination. And in this case, and it's not just you, it seems to be not just the vast majority, but almost all of trans people have more mental health issues Mm-hmm. based on being rejected oh, yeah. from their families, from their church, 
from their society at large and then younger boys and girls being re- being rejected from their social graph from their schools from their peer groups right and so that's where we i think as someone who genuinely wants to help the trans community is we need to legislate for more dollars for mental health services specific to these folks and any adult who transitions specific to cross-sex hormones needs to be recognized and protected with those drugs. They should not have someone come in and swoop in and say, hey, you can no longer take these drugs, right? I don't think that's for Congress to be part of. I think that's up to the doctor and the patient. And if the doctors and our actual subject matter experts say, hey, this person has suffered from gender dysphoria, he or she is now very happy in her new expression and her new gender, and these hormones are keeping them alive. They're keeping them happy. That is a discussion too then, is there's a lot of literature out there that proves very strong corollary data to rejecting trans people's belief. And if you do that, it causes deleterious harm to their mental and emotional space or space. And, and that to me is what we need to work on. I mean, do you see that as well? That the people in your community, if they're rejected and mocked and, you know, mispronounced and ridiculed, that's really difficult for them. No. Yes. In fact, um, this is a common thing that people will say as they're transitioning, they will say, wow, I used to suffer this horrific gender dysphoria that it takes over functioning. It's very hard to live with it. I don't know how to explain it to someone who doesn't go through it, Um, but it's, it's, it's very distressing. And then you finally start taking steps to alleviate it. Yeah. And it's just fantastic. It feels great. But so what people will say is my problems used to be all internal and now I'm getting in peace with myself. The incongruency is going away. I'm aligning with where I should be yeah. or close, as close as possible. But then the external problems begin because first people didn't see you for who you are. Correct. So, and, and then they say, oh, you, you're changing. You're a different person now. And they, yeah, the attacks commence or rejection. It, most definitely. I, even in my faith, I, at some point I was like, is this what God is about? Like, cause it, you know, I used to believe everything the Catholic church would say. I did too. <laughs> very faithfully, very faithfully. But now I'm like, is, is, is there even a God? And I, I would not have questioned these things so strongly or yeah. If, if family was more accepting or if, you know, I wasn't basically kicked out of my religion. Right. <laughs> so right. It, it's it's very harmful to the mind. Yeah. So the problems they start inside, and you you fix yourself to as much as you can, and then the, the external parts it just keeps. Well, not everybody, but for some people, in my experience, for example, I have to keep fighting. I feel like constantly. Do you still do? I'm sorry. I was going to say, do you still do you still suffer from discrimination on yeah. a daily basis? Yeah, like not the, from the people that are close to me, not from right. strangers. Right. 
uh, regular people treat me fine. It's okay. no, it's never been an issue anywhere for me. But uh, within, you know, loved ones, close people, that has been an issue, and that is the harmful part, I believe. Okay, because that's a really good uh, delineation. I think if your family and friends and loved ones are the ones that are having the hard time accepting. That's far more difficult than some random stranger not accepting you as a trans woman. In fact, the random strangers all accept me. <laughs> well, right. There you go. Yeah. So, that, <laughs> so that that's even more ironic. So do you then, do you actually, again, these, these are personal questions, but do you seek therapy to help you with this? I've been thinking about it. I've tried a couple of times, but didn't connect with the therapist because I think they didn't have the right expertise probably or we just didn't match but i've tried twice already and I'm, okay I, we're about to give it a third try perhaps okay so i i'm a big advocate for therapy because i grew up with abuse um which is not tied to this at all but i went to eight years of therapy and i sat on a couch every wednesday at five o'clock and unwound a bunch of anger and issues with my, I had a, my father was a sociopath. So that doesn't go well when you have a father that's a sociopath. And, and so we unwound all this anger and, you know, it really helped me. It helped me because a lot of times when you suffer from trauma or any type of abuse or neglect or uh, discrimination, you mask it and you bury it, and then it manifests in some really unique way. You know, whether it's rage or drinking or drug abuse or, you know, any of the typical, you know, remedies for a lot of folks. Self-medication. with others, yeah. Yeah, and, and or a toxic relationship. Like you, somehow you, you're attracted to some jerk that treats you poorly and you figure, you, I deserve this because you have this level of self-loathing going on, right? And so- Or you treat people poorly yourself. Or you treat people poorly, yes. And so like that, I will also say this about therapists because I've gone for many years. Um, it is as hard to find a good therapist as it is to find a good partner. <laughs> so keep okay. trying. It's, it's you know, I, it is genuinely worth I found a phenomenal therapist who just called me out of my shit within the first 10 minutes we were talking. You know, you're very busy and you think you're really important. And she said, if you don't bring a check every five, every Wednesday at five o'clock, I will not have the session. And I was like, a check, check, like an actual check. And she's like, yeah. I'm like, I don't even have checks anymore. So, well, you can bring me cash too. And I said, well, can I just pay you in advance? And she said, no. So what I can tell about you already is that you think you're pretty important. And I want you to attend to yourself before you get here. And for you to attend to yourself, I need you to bring a check. And when you're thinking about the check, think about what you want to talk about today and why you're a mess. I was like, <laughs> all right, that's good. And, and this was like within the first you know, half hour of the interview. And I was like, sold, <laughs> I will buy you. And she was phenomenal. So be strong on that. Stay, stay on that. Because I actually think therapy specific to family drama, which sounds like you have plenty of, mm. um, that's, I, I highly recommend you figure that out, Chris, because that's, thank you. it will help you a lot. It helped me tons. And I, I'm happily married with two beautiful boys and I have a very good life. And I, in part, uh, my, I don't, not that I don't have anxiety or, you know, moments of grief, but I don't, I'm not all wrapped up, you know, in my 
anxiety like I once was. And so it, it will help. And it will help you understand that this is not you. It's the purview of others. And then how you deal with that level of disconnect, right? That's not your fault. However, your mom and your dad are dealing with this. That's them. That's on them. And you can learn that through, you know, there's behavioral cognitive therapy. There's all these different methods, but it helps you kind of just unwind and love yourself, you know, for who you are. And, and obviously you've done that. You're married, no? I am for seven years now. Congratulations. And you have a little baby girl? I have two children. One is a five-year-old boy, just turned five, and a 10-month-old daughter. That's who I saw on your your bio. So congratulations. That's fabulous. And how is it being a parent? How do you, do you enjoy? Because I just, it's one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. I love it. Yeah, I, I do it full time. It's like the great joy of my life. That's great. That's great. Sorry, I just lost you there for a sec, but I got back. So yeah, oh. and and <laughs> you're okay. Here's another question. So one of the feminists I interviewed this week, who is lesbian, was on Hinge during mm-hmm. COVID, and okay. on Hinge, you you know, identity. You're looking for a partner. And in their descriptors, you know, they say things like, what do you, give me three things that would make you want to, that would make us a good match. And she said something like, never be late. (laughs) Don't make fun of me for my favorite television shows. And please be a biological female. And she was banned permanently from the site for being transphobic. And I referenced that because I've read lots of literature But then I've been accused of saying that's too abstract. So when you read a document or, a, or an article that says dating sites are banning lesbians for identifying that they only want biological females as partners, as transphobic, how do you feel about that as a trans woman? Because I'm curious. I, for me, that sounds <laughs> it sounds ludicrous because it, it's. When you come out, I would assume, and I don't know any of this, but I would assume if if I was gay and I came out as gay, finally, and I admitted to my friends and my family that I love boys, and then I went to a dating site and I was hooked up with a trans man, (laughs) right? So someone who's identifying as male that didn't share with me that until we went on a date, and then I found out that it's a biological female, I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> I've been trying to be gay my whole life. I finally come out and now I'm actually on a date with a biological female. It's, I can't relate. So like, I think it's ludicrous that a lesbian can be banned from a site, a dating site for identifying that they want to be with lesbians only. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? I think every person should be free to like what they like or who they like. So <laughs> that's, I, I think this type of ban is wrong. Yeah. So, and she's, she's actually, or she was, uh, just cutting through the chase. The yeah. fight, instead of the person going on a date or something and then being rejected, which is much worse. I think it's just like from the get-go is what you like. Yeah. Everybody likes a different thing. Some people are more flexible, more curious, more 
or some people know exactly what they're going for. What who am I to judge what other people like? So I think this band is wrong. Yeah, no, I mean that's that's exactly where I sit, and I think that a lot of these issues, and this is our talk today. This is what makes us look bad. This is what yes. makes people not like us. Yeah, because the, the people are creating a lot of problems that don't need to exist. And then you, you create animosity and then people start seeing trans people with a negative eyes. They go, oh, you're going to yeah. force me to like you. Are you going right. to, you know, beat women up in, in boxing, because right. like this type of things. It just makes us look bad. And I think that's positive. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I couldn't agree more. I'm actually pleasantly surprised and somewhat shocked about how much we agree on everything because for me personally, I I try to not take the comments personally online being called names because I don't know most, I don't know these people, right? They're just mm-hmm. online people. Mm-hmm. But it does make you think about yourself because I the last thing I want to do in our reporting on trans on trans people and gender dysphoria as a whole mm-hmm. is offend somebody. That's not my goal. And I'm offending plenty of people by saying that a lot of things that we're talking about. And so I, that's the hard I'm part offending for me. too, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm being offensive to some. I'm, <laughs> you know, I've seen trans people being called turf too. Trans people be turf. How, how, how do can you do a that? trans person be <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing too. A turf, if anyone who hasn't, if this is their first podcast, it's a trans exclusionary radical feminist. And, and the funny thing there is what I've been told from my feminist friends is that a man cannot be a radical feminist because radical feminists are in part attempting to uh, end the patriarchy, which makes total sense. But I can't be, I can be an ally of a feminist. I can be an advocate, but I'm not an actual radical feminist myself. So I can't be called a turf, but that doesn't exclude them from calling me a turf. (laughs) So yeah, no, it's, this is a, this has just been wonderful because I, I do, and I will continue to have conversations with trans women, trans men. Uh, I am. I have a couple of clinicians coming on over the next month to talk about puberty blockers as an example, um, as a clinician. What does it do to endocrinology? What does it do to bone density? Uh, when is it used properly? When is it not used? All those pieces too. So they are, and they haven't come on yet. I've had three doctors that have agreed to be on and then they tried to get approval from their hospital and they were denied. And uh, so this oh one has, God. this one has been approved and I'm, I'll be talking to them later in July, but yeah, I guess I'm a little bit gobsmacked about how much we agree. And I'm, I'm happy about that because I, I'm trying not to be mean spirited or bias, you know, to the stuff yeah. that I'm reading and understanding. Mm-hmm. Well, I have not met a whole lot of trans people that think, particularly the way I do. No, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't yeah. So, yeah. But the thing is, because I discuss mostly with, with religious people, the point of view that we have, like, I cannot call my family turf. They're not radical feminists. They're coming from right. different side completely. I, so the word I use is gender critical. So they, they, cause they're critical of, of, and that's a word that is used. Um, that is that a term they, I recently they, understood. That's, they call themselves. The people that others call turf. I never call anyone transphobic. I never call anyone turf. I don't like calling people names. I don't yeah. think being aggressive is the way, because I don't want to 
push people away. I want to, I would rather, because I, I, I do understand for me that uh, suffering gender dysphoria and going through this experience in my mind is not ideological. I don't, I don't, I try not to have ideology. Try not. Right. I, I see this as a, as a medical condition that happened spontaneously. I was, in my view, one of the unlucky ones that did not grow out of it. Right. And I did. Uh, it's hard for me sometimes to sit and, and argue the, the, about the medicalization of children, for example, because I was a 13 year old who went after injections and the testosterone blocker. And I, and I was doing that on and off for 10 years. I still went through male puberty. But uh, it's this thing, right, uh, where people always come to me and say, it's the gender ideology, you, you can't be a surf of that. Like, I, there's a lot of parts that are ideological that I can sense and that I yeah. don't agree with because I also have, uh, I've, I've read a lot about other things and I'm always listening to the turf. I'm always listening to detransitioners. I think they're fascinating people to talk they to. Have you heard too. of them? Oh my gosh, yeah. I've studied a lot of them. And that that's also yeah. another piece where, that's where the gender affirming care mm-hmm. is. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that it, it's meant, you know, there's. It has good intention. Yeah. They have, thank you. They, they're coming from a good place. But I think a lot of the gender affirming care, specifically to the detransitioners that I've talked to, say they went down the path based on the fact that they were young and mm-hmm. impressionable and that. And a lot of the communities online, have you been on any of those by any chance? Like the Tumblr community specific to trans? And... I haven't made the Tumblr, but I've heard lots about it. Yeah. because yeah, and that's... There is the aspect of social contagion too. I think yes. that's what you're referring to, right? And I yeah. like, what's her name? Julie Butler, was that her name? Yeah, Julie Butler. Yeah, that wrote the book. I think she's right. I think there is a thing happening because this used to be a, Male dominated condition back in the day. Well, actually, you might right. be talking about Abigail Shear's book, which is. Oh, uh, sorry, I changed yeah, it. Julie Butler is actually, a, she's a she's big gender affirming care advocate. Oh, I'm. I'm uh, Abigail Shear wrote the book. Yes, that um, one. Sorry. Yeah, The uh, Irreversible Damage. Mm-hmm. And so that's a powerful book, by the way. Anyone who's listening, uh, whether you agree with it or not, she actually coined the acronym rapid onset gender dysphoria and she's a academic, uh, highly educated Oxford, Yale lawyer, journalist, just big thinker. Uh, and her book was fascinating. I mean, it actually, it's scary. Uh, she talks Mm -hmm. specifically about 11 to 15 year old girls on the contagion front and Mm -hmm. where that came from. And there's a 4,400% increase in teenage girls, 11 through 15, identifying from female to male, changing their pronouns. And a lot of that, and I don't know enough to argue about this with any atomacy, but everything I've read in the literature is alarming in the sense that they talk about the historical issues with young girls all the way back to the 19th century, hysterical laughing, anorexia nervosa, bulimia, cutting, none of which statistically are typical of boys. So boys do not have the same level of contagion or inclusion specific to their peer groups. Um, We're more interested in just being knuckleheads, you know, as a group. Um, But that is a book that I think needs some attention. 
and deserves some attention. It's getting plenty now because it it was, you know, it was banned by the trans community and it was, you know, admonished as transphobic and mean-spirited and racist. And, you know, poor Abigail just got hammered. Like her whole life was upside down for way too long. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had death threats and rape threats and it was just awful. But yeah, very, very good book uh, on the specifics to Rander. And again, it's not a recognized clinical term, but it is one, according to the literature I've read and the clinicians that I've talked to, that should be explored because it is something where, and this is maybe a good place to dive into this. I want to make clear, I don't, I think there are trans people, you as a wonderful example. So to say, on, and there's, you know, the mean spirited side of things, people say there's no such thing as trans. It's all, you know, it's all hype. It's all contagion. It's all nonsense. That's just mean, number one. And it's categorically false. So I think that the question is, how do we best take care of people who are suffering from gender dysphoria? What does that look like on a therapeutic front? How do we discuss the exigent circumstance of some of these young people being suicidal if they don't get on these medications, right? I think there are, there, for me, I can say if I had a 13-year-old daughter who was suicidal and said, if I don't get these medications, I will kill myself. You know, I have to put myself in that position. Fortunately, I'm not in it. But for me to judge that position, I think is mean. I think it's, you know, we we kind of need to, again, where I sit, obviously, is that I don't think, I don't think it's best served for children to jump down that path. That's just where I sit currently. Yes, I think that um, gender dysphoria, it needs to be assessed more thoroughly. Yeah. And there needs to the medical professionals need to take it easy and really watch because if you, when you look up the transitioners online, most of them are females to males to females. So they're, they're back and they regret going on testosterone. And because I, for the longest time as a religious person with the background that I had, particularly, I used to think, can I, is there any thought process that I can understand that would make me not trans? What do right. these people say that could convince me? Right. Of any type of argument. And I've researched, in my case, it would be male to female to male. Sorry. It's okay. It would be male to female to male if I were to find anyone. Right. <laughs> and I, the majority of people I find are female. Correct. Instead. And, and of course, I cannot relate because most of them will say i didn't have dysphoria how do you why did you transition to begin with right what's the point transitioning for me is such a hassle right that well not that i not that it doesn't do me well but because of other people right in my life that would much prefer that i wasn't trans and i've i've been looking into it like can i ever get it out of me and i can't i can't find a way but i do see all these people that well they say they were trans of course they they did pursue a medical transition or a social transition but they did not have dysphoria or it went away so i i cannot understand that and that's why uh, that book just does shed a light on this phenomenon it does is, there are different every trans person i think has a different experience Agreed. 
And I think that like Julie Bindle, who I interviewed, she wrote a book called Feminism for Women. And she, you know, she said that specifically growing up as a lesbian in England, she didn't really know that she had similar people. She felt alone. And then she moved to Leeds, which is a much more cosmopolitan area in England. And she found her first gay bar and she found women just like her. She's like, oh my God, these are women that were not feminine. These are women that dress like I did. They were butch. She mentioned one. She goes, one was so butch that she could kickstart her vibrator. You know, I was like, okay, it was great. Love that. And uh, it was, it was like, she just, not only did she come out, but she said, that's one of her biggest concerns today with young women, if they are butch lesbians and very masculine in their, in their wants and their needs and their expression and their hobbies. She said a lot of times, and this is what Abigail Shear talks about in her book, is that the first, historically, if you went to a therapist because you were suffering mentally and you were trying to figure out who you were, they might say, D you might be homosexual. The first thing they say now is that if you're struggling, is that you're probably trans. And again, this is, I'm paraphrasing, so I might be screwing With that gender up. gender nonconformity. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And that's not necessarily, that's not the first thing they need to look at, right? There's a whole bunch of other things, you know, specific to this kind of literature. And even as it relates to the suicidality of it, when they started to study that, there's a Williams, Williams Institute, which is the UCLA think tank. And they have a very, they have an 18 page uh, essay on this. And what they talked about and early on in the essay was that our survey did not explore mental status and history of the patients previous to them identifying as gender, uh, with gender dysphoria. And so the issue there is that if you have been abused as a child or you've had some trauma, something terrible has gone wrong, you have a chemical imbalance, you have some level of autism. Yes. Right? There's that's, all these... There's all these covariates that come into play specific to suicidality. And that's a discussion I've had at length with people because I lost a little brother to depression. And I'm sorry to hear. Thank you. And so my family has done a lot of homework on that. Like where, how do you find causal connections to suicide, right? And there aren't any, just to be clear. There are corollaries, it's powerful ones. If you do this, most likely this will happen. But you can't direct a direct causal connection to say, if you deny a trans person their right to use a pronoun, will they kill themselves? Will, will it cause mental trauma? Yes. Will it cause, you know, emotional trauma? Yes, it will cause harm. Can you tie that to eventual suicide? You know, that's where the, like, the whole big rub is on that side. But I think that's also part and parcel to everything to do with the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the gender affirming therapists. Uh, to your point, we need to kind of slow down on a lot of this. And I agree with that specific to rushing to judgment, specifically with this, you know, relatively new phenomena with young girls, the 11 mm -hmm. to 15 year olds who are indeed suffering. Uh, and I don't question any of that. The question is why are they suffering, right? It, mm -hmm. It's not all gender dysphoria. Some of it's homosexuality, some of it's other mental issues, some of it's, you know, autism, as we talked about. 35% yeah. of people diagnosed as gender dysphoric 
this is from, I can't cite the report, so I shouldn't say it, but 35% are autistic mm-hmm. or suffer from some level of autism. And those are things that they're diving into now as clinicians and researchers to try to figure out, you know, is there a, a corollary that they can kind of glom onto? I've noticed that a few years ago, there was one, one day, like five, six years ago, I was talking to my wife and said, have you noticed everybody's talking about being autistic? And she said, no, I've never seen that. And I said, well, just go in my social media. There's every other person is posting about that. Well, I have a lot of trans people in my right. circle. So she doesn't. So it's like, oh, that's interesting. That if I've known enough trans people, eventually they will mention they're autistic as well. Like, I've even heard the, some people speculating that it could be a, that that um, going through this could be a, a feature of autism. Yep, I've I've read that, that too. Well, they're well they're exploring that, and that's the same mm-hmm. thing they're exploring with rapid onset gender dysphoria. I mean, obviously they're gonna. I think there's going to be plenty of medical intervention now to understand this better, uh, and that's the hope. And I think I've probably taken enough time of yours today, Chris. So let me just say thank you again for being brave enough to come on the show. Tell us your story. Uh, from all observable data, you seem to be a lovely human being who is happily married with two wonderful kids and a wonderful career in my home state of Minnesota. And so I wish you nothing but luck and good luck finding a good therapist because they're worth it. I promise you, you won't regret that. And thanks again for all your time and energy today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.